Welcome to my Love Life Podcast, episode number 65, A Primer on Allergies. It's September 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Lisa A. Lundy, author, blogger, YouTuber, motivational speaker, and podcaster. I also happen to be a member of the Newsweek Expert Forum. What I help people do is I help people be well-loved, happy, and healthy, even when life is very difficult. As my disclaimer, this podcast does not constitute medical or therapy advice in any way, and my music is by Howie Moskovich. A primer on allergies. Well, this happens to be one of my areas of expertise. I'm kind of chuckling, but uh, it is. I have had allergies my entire life, and they are well under control. I don't take any medication or need to take any medication. And in addition to my own allergy rich history, long-standing history, I have 24 plus years of experience in dealing with young people and other adults who have allergies. So what I want to say in this podcast is I would love to be really forthcoming and honest. And I will say what I can say, but if you're not familiar with a film documentary titled The Corporation, you might not really understand um, the lay of the land in America and that it can be problematic or dangerous to speak the truth when it comes to medicine and certain other areas. I mean, we did just have a physician jailed in America for speaking the truth who also happens to be an attorney God bless this physician. So they clearly know the legal field and wouldn't say anything that was illegal. But so when we can jail a physician for speaking the truth, the rest of us lay people, we better be very careful. So I am going to be very careful about what I say in this podcast. So if you're not familiar with the corporation, I would take a look at that. Other uh, film documentaries worth a mention here in the intro are the Brzezinski movie. I think there are two now by Eric Marola, Second Opinion by Ralph Moss, and uh, another tiny film but also worth a look-see is The Tomato Effect. So even though I have a tremendous history of allergies, I am symptom-free and I will talk about how you get there because you can be free of symptoms, even though you have allergies. So let's get going. So what am I going to cover in this podcast? Well, what I'm going to cover is defining allergies and anaphylaxis. I'm going to give you a couple of little quick facts about my own history with allergies. I'm going to briefly talk about the history of allergies because that is very significant. I'm going to address really what causes allergies, but more importantly, why are allergies increasing so much in the last couple decades, because that's a frequent question I get. The politics of medicine, I'm going to talk about food allergies and intolerances, some a quick mention on environmental allergies, 
I'm going to talk to you about some different techniques for testing for allergies. I'm going to briefly talk about some treatments for allergies and give you some suggestions for if you're dealing with allergies before I give you my takeaway and call to action. Now, if you happen to be new to my content, I certainly hope you're going to visit my website to enter my current giveaway, which is called Look, Look, I Want a Book. And yes, you can win a book. And I do have an upcoming giveaway that's going to start very soon. Well, well probably um, by November, which is going to be gluten-free and allergy-free cookbooks I'm giving away, some aprons and stuff, because I have stuff I need to move out of my place. So my website is www.lisaalundy.com, and I hope you'll enter my giveaway, because I love giveaways. My customers love giveaways. Everybody loves getting free stuff. It's really fun. And as a happiness expert, you better believe I do things that make me happy, and that makes me happy. Now, the next part is my disclaimer, which is very important. I am not a medical professional or a health professional or a therapist in any capacity, and you should be getting your medical or therapy advice from a licensed healthcare provider, of which I'm not. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you happen to be suicidal or despondent or feeling hopeless or thinking about, you know, suicide or, or harming yourself, I'm asking you to stop what you're doing and please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That number again is 1-800-273-8255. What I'm asking you to do, if that's how you feel, is to talk about it and tell people because I promise you people will help you. It might not be the people that you hope will help you or that you expect to help you, but there is actually help available and people would really want to help you if they knew. So that's that. All right, now I want to get into this next section, which is defining allergies and anaphylaxis. And the last part of this section is very important and I'll highlight that. So the dictionary definition of allergy is a damaging immune response by the body to a substance, especially pollen, fur, a particular food, or to dust, which the body has become hypersensitive to. Now, the medical definition for allergy, which comes from Joseph, Joseph M. Doherty et al. in the National Library of Medicine Stat Pearl's book is this. Allergy, I'm reading from his um, piece in the uh, Library of Medicine Stat Pearl's book. Quote, allergy is a broad topic and speaks to the body's immune response to foreign substances common in the environment and triggers a reaction from the body's immune response described as hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity is an inappropriate immune response to common, typically harmless antigens manifesting as a continuum from minor, atopic dermatitis and rhinitis, to severe manifestations, anaphylaxis, asthma, and anaphylactoid. So that's the medical definition. So allergies come in a broad range of severities, and the life-threatening allergies, whether it's to a food, most commonly attributed to food, 
<clears throat> but can also be to drugs and environmental things and bee stings, is known as anaphylaxis or when you're in anaphylactic shock. So it's important for you to understand that you can have <clears throat> some allergic symptoms without having anaphylaxis, but that you can then develop anaphylactic shock or anaphylaxis to something that you previously ingested, you ate, or you were exposed to. So the signs for anaphylactic shock include a severe shortness of breath, a drop in blood pressure, or which could be like a rapid pulse or a weak pulse, loss of consciousness, developing hives or skin rash, feeling lightheaded, vomiting, and nausea. Those are the most common. And anaphylactic shock can develop within minutes to a few hours. So it's not necessarily an instant reaction within minutes, although that's kind of what we think of. So what's really important, and I talk about this a little later, but I'm going to talk about it right here. Let's say you eat apples, and when you eat apples, you notice you become very mucousy or you get a little tingle in the back of your throat. That's a warning sign to you that you should probably immediately go see a physician and rule out an IgE allergy, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, because you can develop anaphylaxis or go into anaphylactic shock without warning. So that's really, like I really, really sternly caution you. Now the next piece of this is important if you're a consumer. So in the field of allergy, back in the day, back in the like 60s and early 70s, they used to refer to the different types of allergy by type. They would say there are four types of allergies, type 1, type 2, type 3, and type 4. But then come late 60s, early 70s, they... They, they discovered and then understood the mechanism for IgE-mediated allergy, and that's kind of what's been gravitated to. So even though this sounds a little technical, if you have allergies, this is one of the most important pieces of this podcast that you understand. So there's Ig, so we've ditched the type 1, type 2, and type 3, and type 4, and now we have what's called IgE-mediated or non-IgE-mediated. So the IgE-mediated IgE allergy refers to what used to be called type 1. And the non-IgE-mediated allergy is encompassing what formerly was called type 2, type 3. Type 2, type 3, and type 4. So what is IgE allergy? Well, IgE allergy is when your body produces immunoglobulin E. That's where the IgE comes from. Immunoglobulin E are antibodies are produced by the immune system. So this is something that can be measured and, and known. So then that leaves non-IgE-mediated. And so for a non-IgE-mediated response, that's, you know, other antibodies that are not IgE. They're not immunoglobulin E. And why this is important, because according to the research, and I will say I have three moving boxes of medical research <laughs> materials that I'm holding on to for dear life because they would be very hard to 
to find again. Historically, if you looked at the total amount of allergies a person could have, 5 to 10% of allergies fall into the IgE, which means that 90 to 95% of allergies are going to be in the non-IgE mediated categories. Why is this important to you as a layperson and as a consumer? Well, if you go to certain types of doctors, they're only going to test you for IgE. And that would be important for you to know. Because if you're going to get tested for allergies, most people that I deal with and that I know want to be tested for 100% of allergies. They don't want to only be tested for 5 or 10%. Excuse me. So if you're a consumer going to a physician to be tested for allergies, it would be a prudent and helpful question to ask the doctor, are you testing me for IgE mediated allergies only, or are you testing me for both IgE and non-IgE mediated? You wouldn't take your car to a car dealership that only did 5 to 10% of your repair repairs, well, I mean, you might, but most people wouldn't take their car to a car repair shop that was only going to work on 5 to 10% of the car's problems. So if you ask a physician, are you going to be checking me out or testing me for IgE-mediated allergies only, or are you testing me for both IgE and non-IgE-mediated allergies, and they get upset, that might be telling to you because there are certain physicians that are only going to look at IgE. Then there are other physicians that are going to look for IgE and non-IgE mediated. And this is critical because I've gone to doctors with consumers that I'm not related to, and you know there's sometimes a pushback when the patients ask that question. So you want to watch for how your physician reacts to that question because the best kinds of doctors that I'm aware of and that I deal with, they love it when patients are educated. They absolutely love it when patients have questions and are curious because that's helpful. So you need to understand that IgE-mediated allergy is a particular type of allergy and that there are non-IgE-mediated allergies that represent the lion's share of allergies. That's going to be very helpful because when I talk to someone and they'll say, well, I got tested for milk and I was told I don't have a milk allergy, but every time I drink milk, I get diarrhea and I can't leave the house. How is that possible? Well, they were probably tested IgE only for milk. Their body didn't produce immunoglobulin E, so therefore it's a non-IgE mediated response that wasn't tested for. So consumers don't like this, by the way. It's kind of disingenuous to consumers to say, oh, I've tested you for allergies and you don't have any, when the patient was only tested for one form, IgE, that represents 5 to 10%. You know, now if you say to the patient, oh, I only tested you for IgE, so I didn't test you for all the non 
IgE-mediated allergies, which is 90 to 95%, that would be different. But we're not saying that. Doctors are not saying that to their patients. Trust me, they are not. So that's extremely important for you to know and understand because I'm hopeful. What I'm hopeful of this podcast is you're going to say, hmm, yeah, I know I have allergies. Maybe it's time for me to get to work on that. So as a sidebar on my own allergies, back in the day when I was a baby, I was so allergic and so sickly that eventually at a year and a half, the pediatrician told my parents, you better take her to an allergist. She's not, she doesn't have a cold. She has allergies. And I got allergy shots for approximately 16 years. Now I'm going to knock on wood and say Hail Mary, but my allergies, since I stopped the allergy shots, have been well under control. I don't need, I don't have asthma. I don't have allergic reactions if I avoid certain things. I don't take allergy medication. I don't take any prescriptions. I'm like as healthy as you can be. Pray to God that continues. But I also do things so that I will be healthy. I mean, I do have several food allergies, some of which are life-threatening. I'm allergic, very fatally allergic to two common medications. And, you know, things like food dyes and MSG really bother me. So I have to avoid certain things because I don't like feeling sick. I don't like getting a headache or not feeling well. But I have a great life and a full life and I'm very healthy. But part of that is because I do take some supplements approximately 10 times a month, not with any rhyme or reason. It's very random. I spend less than $10 a month on supplements and I'm getting high quality physician recommended brands. And I think that, you know, spending less than $10 a month to be really healthy with my kind of allergy history, I think that's pretty remarkable. And certainly it's less expensive than a prescription medication would be. So I also happen to avoid fragrances, things that are toxic, mold. I, you know, use natural cleaners and, you know, I do things to be healthy. So if you have allergies and your allergies are problematic enough that you have to take an allergy prescription or medication or, you know, you're just kind of hung out to dry in the spring and the fall with, you know, hay you know, then it's time, you know, to see a physician and get that going, get that under control. Now, I do want to mention briefly a little bit about the history of allergies because to me this is really another important piece for you to understand it's i'm not happy about this but it is what it is so hippocrates who's considered to be the father of medicine wrote about food allergies over 2000 years ago yes he did he absolutely did and he talked about food being injurious or injuring some but not being injurious to all. And he also talked about rotation diets. So allergies are not new. They're just increasing exponentially. So we have more people being awake and aware to allergies than in the past, but they've always been around. Now, in 1905, this Australian doctor by the name of Dr. Francis Hare 
wrote a two-volume, thousand-page book, two, two volumes, titled The Food Factor and Disease. And that was all about, you know, a whole list of diseases that could be remediated or addressed from food allergies, including migraine headaches, headaches, asthma, gout, epilepsy, nervousness, mania, which is like bipolar or, you know, depression, dyspepsia, bronchitis, eczema, hypertension, gastrointestinal disturbances, and other degenerative diseases. So at the beginning of the 1900s, this is what physicians were doing as a rule. They were looking at the patient's environment and they were looking at the patient's diet to see what could be eliminated to provide better health. Now, just to also give you an idea, uh, the term allergy was first postulated or used by Dr. Clemens von Pierquet in 1906 to describe an inappropriate reaction to food or other substances that were not typically harmful or bothersome. But I want you to know that in 1908, Dr. Alfred Schofield of England wrote about successfully treating a boy who suffered from an allergy to eggs. That was published in The Lancet in 1908, page 716. Why is that important? Because we still in America are not treating egg allergies, generally speaking. And that, by the way, was repeated and, you know, I could just go on and on. Actually, I wrote a, a paper on the history of, of um, food allergies and you can actually, it's not on my website right now, although I have plans to put it on my website, but it was written quite some time ago. Anyway, I found my own paper online yesterday on this uh, website. It's docshare.tips forward slash food hyphen allergy hyphen paper. And so that's where you can find the paper and read all. Uh, this is a very rich history, which we've basically flushed down the tubes. We have disappeared the notion that food could be causing your health problem. Now, I'm happy to say that the Fine Gold Association, of which I'm a huge fan of, has, has continued to champion the uh, physical manifestations of food reactions and food dyes in children and, and adults for that matter. But, but by and large, this is a topic that food could be causing an illness has been, you know, vanquished. We've just kind of thrown that away. And so this is a word to the wise to you that you have to be, you have to have common sense, number one, but you also have to do your own research. And eventually I'll put my own paper back on my website. But there's a very, there's over 2,000 years of rich history of physicians writing about curing various diseases and degenerative diseases by uh, changing the diet. So history, you know, we're doomed to repeat in history what we don't know. And so this is not something that's commonly discussed. So my next topic is what causes allergies. I'm not really going to talk about that, but really what I'm going to talk about is why are allergies increasing so much. So 
to address the question, what causes allergies? Well, you already know what causes it. It's the body's improper response to a substance that's not typically harmful. And that's what causes it. It's your body's, you know, immune system reaction. So the really, the bigger question or the more frequent question I get is why are allergies increasing so much? Because I did powerfully choose not to include all the statistics on how much food allergies have increased and how much allergies increased because really it's hard to keep up with. I mean, I could have, but I was trying to make this podcast be under an hour. So, so let's talk about why are allergies increasing so much? And I've limited my response to six, although I could have, I could have kept, I could have kept going. So number one, foods that we eat today are less nutritious than they were in the 1930s. And how we know that is because by the thirties, uh, sometime in the thirties, this American soil, I'm speaking for America right now, was stripped of nutrients. So plants that we eat get nutrients from the soil. And when the soil is depleted of nutrients, the plants will still grow. They're just not going to have the same nutritional content, which is why there's a difference between regular foods and organic foods. So number one, the foods that we eat are not, do not contain the same nutrition as prior to 19, the 1930s. Number two, rotation diets. Rotation diets have been used all throughout humanity. And sometime in the 50s or 60s or 70s, I'm not sure when, they fell by the wayside. Now, this is the type of thing that either your grandmother or your great-grandmother or your great-great-grandmother did. And what they did back in the day, and this was like throughout humanity, is they would say make a pot roast for Sunday dinner. So you would have beef in the pot roast Sunday night, and you would have it for lunch on Monday, and that was it. Then Monday night, you would have fish, or you would have pasta, or you'd have chicken, or you'd have something else, and you'd have it again for lunch on Tuesday. What you had for dinner on Monday night, you would have for again. So that meant you were eating beef twice in 24 hours, but not again till a week later. And who still does this, by the way? Oh, old people really know about this because this is just what people did. They, they didn't necessarily even remember or know why. It was just like how people were trained. Old-fashioned diners or a diner <clears throat> that's run by someone who's up there in age, they still do that. They'll still have might not be a pot roast on Sunday, but they'll have different foods every night of the week and, and not repeat it. So rotation diets, historically, starting with Hippocrates, were used because it minimized the increase of allergies because you weren't exposed to the same food all the time, which is one of the ways people become allergic. They eat chicken every single night for years, and then, voila, they become allergic to chicken. <clears throat> now, I will say, some people have a higher tendency or propensity to develop allergies, and some people have like slim to no propensity for developing allergies. So it's dependent upon the person. So rotation diets have gone by the wayside, and that's one reason why food allergies have increased. Number three, <clears throat> people are exposed to more harmful chemicals today 
than 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, because we didn't have some of the chemicals we're exposed to today. today. Back then, they weren't, they weren't developed or established. So when your body is exposed to chemicals, which could come in the form of the perfume you use or the shampoo you're using or, you know, the body lotion, any number of personal care products can, can contain very toxic chemicals. I know that might surprise you, but it's true. Um, and your body has to work to remove those chemicals. I mean, your body actually has to work to remove toxins from your body. So the more that you're exposed to harmful chemicals, which might not be from personal care products, it could be paint in your home or your office, or, you know, it could be other chemicals, your body has to do work to remediate that in your body. So number four, people are eating uh, less healthy foods. I mean, people drink soda every day. They drink, they eat way more sugar than they than people ate in the in the early 1900s or even 1930s, like way more sugar, you know. So and and many people don't eat fruits and vegetables every day. I mean, the nutritional diet. I mean, earlier I said the foods aren't as nutritious because the plants don't have access to the same nutrients in the soil. Set that aside as a different point. People aren't typically eating enough fruits and vegetables, and and they were junk food and soda and things that are not helpful. So number five, people, it seems from the research, people are more stressed out today. They are lonelier. They are isolated. And I'm talking, this was true prior to the pandemic. We could go back more than 10 years. We could go right back to my earliest writings, more, way more than a decade ago. And this was true. Well, what we know from the more recent research is that dealing with loneliness and isolation is more beneficial for your health than dealing with obesity and several other conditions. So the fact that we as a society are more isolated and more and more lonely and, and more unhappy, you know, is a contributing factor to health. And that really, um, I did a podcast that incorporates the science of neuroplasticity in the science of psychoneuroimmunology. That's kind of where that research comes from. All right. So, and number six, um, we're actually eating chemicals today that are banned in foreign countries. So in America, we eat certain food dyes, certain preservatives, certain chemicals that our socioeconomic peers do not allow their consumers to, to have access to. So on top of everything else, we have chemicals in our food that our socioeconomic peers have deemed toxic enough that they won't allow those chemicals in the food supply for their country. And who knows this is some of the food manufacturers who make a different type of cereal or a different type of this or that for foods that go to Canada or Europe. Oh yeah, they know that. We just don't know that, generally speaking. So those are only six of the reasons why allergies are on the rise. There are more, but that gives you an idea that this is not one simple thing. I mean, sometimes people want to say, well, the reason allergies are on the rise is because of the germ theory and people aren't exposed to enough dirt. I'd say that's a bunch of whatever. But anyway, that gives you some 
some real serious facts as to what we know is going on. So, which leads me into the next topic, which is the politics of medicine. So whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, and whether you believe it or not, medicine is very political, very, very political. And this was true back in the 1800s, probably well beyond that, but in the 1800s, Dr. Semmelweis from Australia, no, from um, Austria, discovered that washing, physicians washing their hands in a chlorinated solution would save lives. So Dr. Semmelweis is, is the first physician attributed to hand washing. And what happened to him? Well, he died in shame in an asylum which depending on who you read, he was duped into being committed or however that went, but he died at a young age in shame. And his idea was adopted in Europe because he had written letters to some of his physician friends in France and other countries who weren't like, wow, that's a great idea. American doctors, however, uh, had to be um, kind of publicly shamed into it. So American doctors were the laggards in adopting hand washing in the 1800s. But to give you an idea of the resistance of medicine to innovation and technology, I'm going to just read a sentence from the National Library of Medicine. They have a little piece um, that's called Historical Perspective on Hand Hygiene. Uh, this is, again, from the National Library of Medicine. It's our government research pool. Here's the quote. The 1980s represented a landmark in the evolution of concepts of hand hygiene in healthcare. The first national hand hygiene guidelines were published in the 1980s followed by several others in more recent years in different countries. So hand washing was discovered in approximately 1947 by Dr. Semmelweis. And I just want you to just let it in that it wasn't until the 1980s that it really had some, some substance to it, if we would say. That's pretty sad. But... In the 1970s, or somewhere in that time frame, uh, medical journals stopped publishing two points of view to medicine. So prior to the early 80s, uh, historically, when a journal would provide a, a study or a treatment for a condition, they would also allow an opposing opinion piece on that treatment. And that went by the wayside. So there was no more disputing or disagreement about whatever was being offered in the medical journal, which is a problem. For us consumers, that's a huge problem. And I happen to know, because of the depth I've had to go to to save the life of someone I, I love, that we're not being allowed safe, effective, and inexpensive treatments that are allowed in Europe for starters. So 
if you're listening to this podcast and you think, oh, we Americans, we've got like the best healthcare system and the best doctors, I have to tell you, you're not hip and current because American doctors outside of America are not looked upon generally very favorably whatsoever. Now, to give you a broader context for this, because this is really important. You want to get the best health care. You want to dig down and deal with your allergies so that you can feel better and so that you don't have to take a prescription medication. And if you want to, go right ahead. You can take all the prescription drugs you want. I don't really care. It's not my problem. It's not my business. But there are people who would like to get off of whatever brand of medication for their allergies and have a healthy and happy life. I would seriously recommend you take a look at a book. It's called Dr. Folkman's War. Dr. Folkman, now deceased, uh, this book was written about him and his research. It's basically a history book on cancer. It's a dry, dry, very dry history book on cancer, starting in the, I haven't read it for more than a decade plus, almost two decades. Um, but it's a very compelling book about cancer and cancer research. And woven into it is this just amazing and inspirational story, but also about the politics of medicine. And of course, you want to understand cancer, right? Well, I would hope you do. So whether you like it or not, medicine is extremely political. And if it was less political, I'd feel safer and better about saying what I know to you. But I'm not willing to go there because I know how to be prudent and smart. So let me just give you an idea how limited some top physicians are. So so I did all this research for somebody who had a health condition, allergies being one of them, but other things. And, you know, like I just dove in head first. And, and anyway, so this top gastro, pediatric gastroenterologist messaged me on LinkedIn over 10 years ago uh, about a comment I had made, I had left on their post. So they had posted this thing and I left a comment. So this top pediatric gastroenterologist at a very, very, very well-known establishment wrote to me to say, mm, what can you tell me about secretory IgA? I don't know anything about it, and it sounds like you do. Can you help? Can you direct me? So here's the top pediatric gastroenterologist at a very famous institution asking a mother for information about secretory IgA. So of course I was nice and I wrote back and said, yes, I, I have a, a, a one page handout on it. You have to email me privately to get that because I don't have email on LinkedIn or a way to attach it. Um, so here's my email address. If you want it, email me. Oh, right away. I got an email and I sent him the one page document on secretory IgA, which by the way, I took from Jean Mayer. Thank you, Jean Mayer. God bless you, Jean Mayer's medical textbook that I found online about secretory IgA, which by the way, is a very serious health condition if your secretory IgA is too high or too low, but most American doctors don't even know what it is. 
So of course they're not testing for it because they don't even know what it is. So that's the state of affairs in medicine. When a regular mother with no scientific training or schooling can produce an amazing miraculous result with someone they love and in some instances have a leg up on physicians. So you're going to get your best results by being educated and knowledgeable. And I'm sorry that's the way it is. I, it really pains me that that's the state of affairs in medicine, but it is the state of affairs in medicine. And the more you understand that, the more you can produce a really great result. So next I'm going to talk about food allergies and intolerances. So food allergies can be life-threatening or non-life-threatening. And I already mentioned that you could have like you know, maybe you start sneezing after you eat a food or maybe get a little tickle in your throat or, you know, you notice you have some symptom after you eat a food. That could become life-threatening and cause anaphylactic shock without warning. So those are things you, you have to take very, very seriously. I'm, like, not kidding you in any regard. So when you're trying to sort out food allergies, I will tell you that people hate this, but it can be very helpful. Uh, you can keep a food diary, and that can be wildly helpful in you determining, oh, you know what? I don't sleep well every time I have X, Y, or Z for dinner. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Or you might discover, oh, I get this slight headache when I've had, you know, dip or something with MSG. I mean, you know, like, it's really amazing what you can figure out using a food diary. And I know that People don't like doing that. I understand. The other thing that can be helpful with a food diary is if you're nursing a baby. So I did this with two of my three kids. Oh, it was wildly helpful because I could pinpoint rashes on the side of the face or the cheek or this or that from different foods that I was eating. Now, I had originally been told with my first food allergy baby that no, a food cannot pass through the mother's breast milk to the baby. And that's the biggest load I've ever heard. It's not true. And I'm just going to tell you. And boy, that really caused me a lot of problems and a lot of pain and suffering because I didn't know that wasn't true because I, I was taking the doctors at their word and they didn't know diddly. But anyway, so, so I'm going to give you some examples of some of food intolerance in a nursing baby so you can get the scope of this. Because, of course, a lot of this we've disappeared. So upset stomach, and sometimes the symptom for an upset stomach is a baby's refusal to eat. Yes, I lived through that. Petrified poop, I don't know what else to call it, but it's like poop that's like harder than a rock. No, really, seriously, harder than a rock. Uh, loose stool, skin rashes, um, projectile vomit, curdled split up, uh, chemical breath. That would be like the baby's breath smells like when you open a can of film. Now, I know we don't use film anymore, but when you used to open up a can of film, there would be a particular odor, a particular chemical smell. So chemical smell to a baby's breath, in my opinion, is definitely a sign of a food intolerance. Diaper rash, very interesting about diaper rash. I did not know. Food intolerances could cause diaper rash in a baby, but boy, I learned that the hard way. And so that's that's that. So if you're doing the proper treatment and changing like rapidly as soon as they, you know, go to the bathroom and you still got diaper rash, it's probably something that you're eating. And that was just took me forever to figure out because I didn't know. 
I did not know my baby's diaper rash could be caused by something that I was eating. And boy, as soon as I figured that out, guess what? No more diaper rash. I know, like this stuff should be common knowledge. Crying for hours on end. Oh boy. Yeah, I had eaten a meal that was high in gluten, not knowing about celiac disease or gluten. And one of my kids cried for six hours straight. Six hours straight. Like it was memorable. I'll never forget it. And since the baby had never been colicky or cried before or had any, anything other than the most pleasant disposition, I was like, hmm, that must have been what I ate. And I didn't want to eat it again, but I did eat it again to prove to somebody else that it was what I ate. And oh yeah, the exact same thing happened the second time. So, you know, these are symptoms that, at colic, you know, can be symptoms of a food intolerance in a nursing baby. It can also be symptoms of a baby who's got a food intolerance to a formula. Now, I happen to have two kids who could not take any commercially made available formulas at the time because of their food intolerances. Now, let's talk about adults. So, in adults, things like headaches or migraines can be a food intolerance. Now, I will say, without mentioning any names or relationships, that I know somebody who dealt with debilitating migraines for probably something like 20 years. And uh, behind the scenes, I and someone else were talking about this, and I said, oh, I bet you any money it's food. Bet you any money it's food. But they didn't respect me and my approach to medicine, and so we just left it be because you, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Oh, yeah, well, guess what? Like 20 years later, they finally found out what it was. It was garlic. Garlic? That one food, that one intolerance was causing debilitating. I'm talking about close the blinds, turn off the lights, debilitating migraines, and it was garlic. So head, headaches and migraines can be a sign of food intolerance. The inability to focus, or what's also known as brain fog, either constipation or diarrhea, skin rashes or eczema, lightheadedness, dizziness, sneeze attacks, meaning multiple sneezes in a row, having mucus after eating or raspy breath, heart palpitations or racing heart, incontinence. Yes, incontinence can be caused by a food intolerance. I know, like it was really helpful to learn all these things, most of which I learned through the school of hard knocks, by the way, depression and anxiety. I mean, I will, I will just backtrack and say, so somebody, we won't say who, um, who never had incontinence and never wet the bed would wet the bed if we went to McDonald's. And it turns out it was the orange drink at McDonald's. And I finally figured that out. And when we went to McDonald's, and didn't have the orange drink, no incontinence. So like, it's really shocking and amazing. And the Feingold Association uh, has amazing, well, at least they used to, I haven't looked at their website lately, but they used to have amazing research studies. And so there's, there's like all kinds of information to help you. So, but the bottom line is, if you get diarrhea from drinking milk and you've been tested and told you weren't allergic to milk, yeah, you probably have an intolerance, which is a non-IgE-mediated allergy, and that doesn't make people happy. I mean, if you throw up or you get diarrhea or you get like a migraine from a food and you're told, oh, you're not allergic, no, that makes people furious. It makes people really upset, and it's a good reason, and and for good reason, I mean, because you're having a pretty serious reaction, but you won't be told you have an allergy if it doesn't fall into the IgE category.
category if you're dealing with most physicians. All right, so there's some little overview about food allergies and food intolerances. Now, next up is chemical drugs and, and food and uh, environmental allergies. So you can really literally be allergic to anything in the environment. We've seen an increase in the latex allergy. That's a growing allergy. You so common ones are dust and dust mites, plants, grasses, weeds, trees, molds, fungi, metals, fragrances, also a growing one is fragrances, and uh, you know other chemicals. So according to the FDA, that would be the FDA.gov website, cosmetic products, meaning soaps, lotions, face and eye makeup, fragrances, etc., can provoke allergic reactions to people. Well, guess what? If you have asthma, fragrances are known to cause asthmatic attacks, which can be fatal. So fragrances and personal care products, unless you go to the Environmental Working Group org website where they actually have some lists of what products are safe and which products are toxic. You know, you may be using a fragrance or a skincare lotion or a shampoo or conditioner that's loaded with toxins. So environmental allergies or chemical allergy or, you know, uh, they can provide a whole host of different symptoms, which can be difficult, but, it, but there are physicians who test and treat for environmental allergies. So it really depends on the kind of physician. And remember, you want to, if you're going to get your allergies checked out, I would suggest you get IgE and non-IgE mediated allergies tested. I was going to include a section on different kinds of physicians and I decided not to go there. Not when they arrest a doctor for telling the truth who happens to be an attorney. So we're going to move right on into types of testing for allergies. So there's several different types of testing for allergies and the validity of which depends on the doctor you're talking to or depends on the site you're reading. So remember you have to use common sense and do your own research. So one is skin prick, which in my opinion, in my opinion, are not reliable but most frequently used. Uh, skin scratch or scrape testing is also used. Intradermal Skin testing is also used. I think that's pretty, somewhat pretty accurate. That's where they, they inject intradermally a, a small amount of diluted antigen. Um, another way of, of testing is, is the application of the allergen to the skin externally. Patch test, which is often used for latex allergies, cosmetic. Um, some medications and jewelry allergies, notably cobalt and nickel. Blood testing, well, for IgE, blood testing is very accurate, very, very accurate and reliable. It's also inexpensive. Um, now, for non-IgE-mediated allergies, there is blood testing, and, and you need to understand it's just not as accurate. It's not as precise, and it doesn't yield the same results as IgE blood testing, but it's still a tool. And in my opinion, it's a helpful tool. So when I was getting bad advice from well-intended doctors with very, very young children with food allergies or food intolerances, actually they had both, I drove one of my kids to another to a neighboring state to get non-IGE mediated food testing done because it was illegal in the state that I lived in. 
And, uh, but the lab had said, well, if we send the kit to another state and you happen to be living in the other state and, and you could get the blood work done that way, which is what I did. Now the lab that drew the, did the blood draw was just appalled that the testing wasn't legal in the state that I lived in. I said, well, well, welcome to my world. But it was helpful. It was really extremely helpful. And I understood that it wasn't the same pinpoint accuracy as IgE-mediated testing. So they're a tool. And you can find, like, all kinds of food sensitivity tests online now for, you know, $200 or whatever they're, whatever they're charging now. And they're a tool. So you don't want to take it to the bank and say, oh, I had this food sensitivity test and it's 100% accurate and reliable. That's probably not the case. But it's still a tool. It's still a valuable tool. So the kind of testing you would receive would depend on the type of physician that you see. Because there are certain physicians that only do, say, skin pricks or scratches. And I just oh, I have so much I could say about that, but I'm... I'm being self-disciplined, <laughs> keeping holding my tongue. So anyway, so now we're going to move into treatments for allergies. Well, that also depends entirely on the type of physician that you see. It actually depends on the country you live in, because if I was in Europe, guess what? They have two treatments, or at least they did back in 2004, two treatments to desensitize children and adults who had life-threatening food allergies. Yeah two treatments. They didn't need EpiPens in Europe. And that, and that really galled me. But anyway, so some different types. So typically the primary treatment for food allergies that are IgE is avoidance. That's just what you do. Now, um, if you can afford to go to Europe, Europe, you could get desensitized for life-threatening food allergies in one of two mechanisms, and there might even be more now. I don't know. Um, in America, some physicians practice what's called low-dose allergen, which is a series of shots where you are exposed to a very, very highly diluted dose of the allergen, and over time that builds up your your resistance to having a reaction and I personally have experience with the low dose allergen and I'm I'm very pleased with it. Now it's not designed so that you can eat the food that would kill you but it's designed to mitigate or reduce the severity of the reaction and that's helpful. So there are other desensitization techniques and like I said this is an area I'm not going to go in. So if you have allergies and you're interested in treatments, well, it depends on what physician you're going to go see and what they offer and how they do it. Like, that's just the way it goes. But regardless, if you stick to it, you can resolve your allergies and even asthma. I mean, back in the day, I had three asthmatic children. And then one day they weren't, and I was really stunned. And I said to the doctor, well, they don't need this medication anymore. And and the doctor was like, no. I'm like, well, I, I didn't know you could treat asthma. Well, what people usually do is they're addressing the symptom. And if you go for the core problem and address the core problem, then you don't have the symptom anymore. All right, so I've got a list of about 15 suggestions if you happen to be someone who's dealing with allergies. Number one, and by the way, I could go more than 15. I just limited it to the top ones. <laughs> 
Number one, use an air purifier, not the kind that lets out a little bit of ozone. No, you don't want ozone in wherever you live. And there are some companies that say, oh, it's fine to have this teeny tiny amount of ozone which our machine produces. No, no, I, I do not agree with that. I will never agree to that based on my research. But an air purifier, particularly in your bedroom, if you have allergies, if you've never had a kind of really high quality air purifier, and they cost a couple hundred dollars, you would be shocked and amazed at what the filters look like after six months. Like it's, it's always shocks me <laughs> at this for, let's say 17 years with the air purifiers. And it still always shocks me <laughs> how bad the air purifiers are. And, you know, it's not like I live on a farm or I have like eons of animals. I mean, they would look horrible before I owned a dog. So definitely use an air purifier and uh, it will set you back a little bit to get a good quality one, but it's worth it. Number two, if possible, eliminate or reduce carpeting. Carpeting is like the haven for dust and dust mites. And I don't care what, if you have a HEPA vacuum, you will never get all the dust and dust mites out of your carpeting. So if you can limit or reduce carpeting, that's wildly helpful. Number three, and I've had people tell me they will not do this. Well, you know what? Guess what? It's your life. You can do whatever you want. But seriously, I would suggest strongly that you get the allergy mattress cover and box spring encasements. They're actually encasements. Now, they're actually good not just for dust and dust mites. They're also good for bed bugs. Who doesn't want their mattresses and mattresses and box springs protected from bed bugs? I don't know. But if you have a history of allergies, that should be high on your list. And the same for pillows. Period. Number four, use fragrance-free products, like for your shampoo, conditioner, or at the very least, buy the kind that the fragrance isn't coming from a toxin. Typically, when you get fragrance-free products, they're also free of parabens, phthalates, and other bad stuff. Number five, use non-toxic cleaning products. What, what can I say? Number six, eliminate indoor mold and or remediate it if you have it. You might be surprised if you have your indoor air quality tested that you have mold. Typically, we think, well, it's going to smell musty or moldy. Maybe, maybe not. Definitely, if it smells musty, you have mold. Definitely, if it smells moldy, you have mold. But, you know, if you have mold, that is not a good thing. So, remediate or eliminate indoor mold. Number seven, use non-toxic paint and non-toxic building supplies if you're renovating your home or your living space. I, you know, I didn't know this and uh, we had one of my kids tested, not the one you might be thinking of, and, you know, paint fumes, the chemicals from paints were in their bloodstream. So it's really really important, especially if you have children, and even if you don't, to use non-toxic building supplies everywhere you can. Number eight, this is a surprise, and it's only a surprise because I learned this from having our indoor air quality tested, and that is you might need to open your windows, 
couple times a week or at least once a week for a little bit because when I had the indoor air tested, it was actually too high in um, carbon dioxide, not carbon monoxide that can kill you and poison you, but carbon dioxide. So there are reasons where opening your windows is probably a good thing. If you don't want to go test for carbon dioxide, just open your windows periodically. And by the way, that's like one of the things that your grandmother, great-grandmother, or your great-great-grandmother used to say, oh yeah, open the windows. All right, so dust and clean regularly, particularly using the non-toxic cleaning supplies I mentioned. Use a HEPA vacuum. That would be a vacuum with a HEPA filter. Boost your immune system as directed by your physician. I'm not a person who advocates self-medication. I just don't. And um, if you see the right kind of physician, they'll be interested in having you have high-quality supplements. Now, the kind of quality supplements I'm talking about, I cannot buy where I live. Because where I live, they don't carry the type of brands that the physicians that I know and love would recommend. So talk to your physician about boosting your immune system. And by the way, if you have a very poor immune system, I mean, I dealt with someone who had zero immune system and they were able to get their immune system fixed up and straightened out. All right, so get plenty of good quality sleep. It's not just how much sleep that you get, but that good quality that you're sleeping well. Because when you are sleeping is the only time that your body can work on repairing itself. And if you have allergies, that's a sign of inflammation. There is repair work that needs to be done. So you've got to make sure you're getting enough sleep and enough good quality sleep. Next, number 13, ditch the live Christmas tree. Live Christmas trees usually bring mold into your living space. Sorry to tell you, and I would get a non-toxic artificial tree if you're getting an artificial tree. Number 14, stay out of moldy buildings. If it smells musty or moldy, no. Like, I I have been places, because I'm very sensitive to mold, uh, where I would say, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't come in there. It's too moldy or, you know, it doesn't work for me. And number 15, use a food diary where you need to, because it can help you sort out your food issues if you've got food allergies or food sensitivities or food intolerances. All right, so... Here's your takeaways. Number one, it's time to recognize the commonality and in the increase in food allergies and environmental allergies because they are increasing. Number two, it's time to start taking actions to address your allergies because you can. And number three, it's time to be a word to the wise that you're going to have to use common sense and do your due diligence to figure out what's true when it comes to dealing with allergies. For my call to action, time to get into action because you want to feel good. Like everybody wants to feel good and allergies don't feel good. And it's time number two to do your own research because that might be required if you want to get a good outcome. And lastly, share this podcast with other people so they can get the skivvy on allergies. That's it. I'm Lisa Lundy saying thank you for listening to my Love Life podcast, episode number 65, a primer on allergies. I hope you're going to get into action and start dealing with allergies if you have them so you can improve your health. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please subscribe so you get the new ones automatically and definitely and enter one of my giveaways or the giveaway that's current so you can win something. I love you. I appreciate you. Hang in there for now. Bye.